If you're ready to gain a lifetime of real estate secrets in just minutes a day, then this podcast is for you. For the past 40 years, Dolph DeRoos, the king of commercial real estate, has helped thousands of new and experienced investors turn properties into cash and dreams into reality. If you're ready to make more money, do bigger deals, and reach greater levels of wealth through real estate, then we have exactly what you need on Buy Big with Dolph DeRoos. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of King of Commercial Real Estate with our amazing Dolph DeRoos. Thank you so much for coming over to here. My absolute pleasure, Marjorie. How are you today? Super duper. And today we're going to talk about the topic that everyone likes to talk about in investing, money. So first of all, what is the cap rate for a commercial building? Well, that's diving in at the deep end. Cap rate is short for capitalization rate. It's the rate at which you capitalize the rental to arrive at the value of a building. So for ease of calculation, let's assume for a moment that cap rates are 10%. And let's say we've got a commercial building with an annual income of $100,000. So the value of a commercial building is the rental income, $100,000, divided by the market cap rate, which is said was 10%. 100,000 divided by 10% is $1 million. That building would be worth $1 million. Now, it gets a little bit confusing because many real estate agents say, and it's not completely incorrect, but I think it's the wrong emphasis. They say this building is selling for a million dollars. It's selling at a cap rate of 10%. And what I think they really mean is they're saying it's selling at a return of 10%. If you buy this building for a million dollars, you'll get a return of 10% or 100,000. But instead, they use the word cap rate almost interchangeably with return. Mm. And it takes away from the reality that the value of a commercial building is determined by its rental income. Mm. And that's where it differs a bit from residential real estate. The formula with residential is that the ROI, the return on a residential property, equals the rental income divided by the purchase price. Mm -hmm. So this building is selling at a return of 5% means you're getting a 5% return. That's why I'm saying, Major, it kind of means the same. It's selling at a cap rate of 10%. But if that particular building is selling at a cap rate of 10%, which is really a return of 10%, my question to the agent would be, "Uh uh-huh, but what are market cap rates? Mm. Now, here's the thing. Market cap rates, the cap rate of the market is the average of all the returns that buildings have been selling at. Mm. So if every building of that grade, say it's a grade A building, if they've all been selling at returns of 10%, then we would say the market cap rate is 10%. Now, if we have a building with a cap rate of, say, 15%, that makes it worth something different. So I think it's important to hear the difference between those two. But cap rate literally means capitalization rate. And here's the thing, at any one given point in time, in a particular market for a particular grade of building, let's say cap rates are 10%. But over time, as an economy improves, cap rates tend to come down. Mm. And as an economy worsens, cap rates tend to go up. What does that mean? Well, as the economy improves, cap rates coming down means people are willing to spend more money to buy that $100,000 of income. If in the beginning, when the economy is not that good, cap rates are 10%, that means for that income of 100,000, investors are only willing to spend a million dollars. They want to see a 10% return. But as the economy improves and everyone thinks things are getting better, 
then investors investors are willing to spend, say, $2 million mm. to buy that 100000 of income. Cap rates will have gone down to 5%. Investors are sufficiently confident at the longevity of the market and how good it is that they're willing to accept a mere 5% return to buy that 100000 income. And then at the other end of the scale, when the economy gets worse again, then cap rates tend to go up. No, they're no longer willing to spend $2 million to buy that 100000 now they're only willing to spend a million dollars to buy that 100,000. They need a return of 10%. Cap rates have gone up to 10%. So over time, cap rates vary, but at any one point in time, cap rates are fixed and they vary depending on the grade of the building, the location of the building. Wall Street in New York, which is an extraordinarily mm. desirable place to own real estate, because you'll always have a tenant. Even in the worst economy, you'll get some companies willing to not only headquarter on Wall Street, but be seen to be headquartering on Wall Street. Right. Therefore, cap rates are very low, say 2%. That means the factor is 50. For that 100,000 of income, people are willing to pay $5 million mm. because they're only getting a 2% return. So who determines then uh, this cap rate? Is it like a... Uh... It's the market. It's the aggregate of all the returns that similar buildings and similar areas have been selling for. And that's why over time, the market will change. As the economy gets better, cap rates come down, investors are willing to accept a lower return. The market determines it. Great question. And how can we uh, find the specific cap rate for the buildings that we're looking at? It's usually general knowledge. It's usually if you look at any reputable commercial sites, C.B. Richard Ellis, Jones, Lang, Lasang, whatever they're called now, um, they tend to have those statistics at their fingertips, or you can just do a survey yourself, find out what these buildings have been selling at, and do an aggregate, that is your cap rate. Oh, really interesting. Uh, another of the terms that we learned uh, was the triple net lease. Can you explain to us what it is? Oh, okay. Well, to explain that in its simplest terms, when you own a house, a residential property, and you rent it out, the tenant generally pays you rent. Let's say it's $2,000 a month. The question then becomes, who pays the property tax and the insurance on the building and the maintenance? And the answer is, the landlord pays for that. So the tenant pays you the $2,000 in rent. Over a year, that's $24,000, but that's considered gross rent. And from that rental, the landlord has to pay property taxes, insurance, and maintenance, and then taxes and everything else that comes with it. Mm -hmm. With commercial real estate, it's very common for the tenant, the commercial tenant, to pay a base rent. And in addition to that, they pay their share of the property taxes, insurance, mm -hmm. and maintenance. If there are two tenants occupying 50% each, they each pay 50% of the property taxes, 50% of the insurance, 50% of the maintenance. Often you'll have a mix of tenants. I've got a commercial building with eight tenants, all on different areas. So they've got weird percentages of what they pay towards those things. So the base rent they pay, in addition to those other expenses, the base rent they pay is net of the property taxes, insurance and maintenance. In other words, they pay those things in addition to those three items. And that's why it's called a triple net lease. It is net of those three items. They pay those in addition to the base rent. Why do we separate them out? I go one step further. My tenants often pay two amounts per month, mm. not one amount. One amount is for the rent, the base rent, and the other amount is the 12 monthly budgeted projection, prediction of what their property taxes, insurance, and maintenance will be. 
And the reason I split it in two is, let's say the insurance company increases their rates, which they did last year. Their premiums mm. went up by 8% in oh. one year. And my property taxes went up by 3%. Mm. What I do is I send my tenants a photocopy of last year's insurance statement and this year's insurance statement. And I show the numbers, same with the property taxes. And I say, these items have gone up. The rent hasn't changed, but your new budgeted annual costs are going to go up to this level. And then they know that I'm not jacking the rent up. The rent has stayed the same. It's actually the city council and whoever provides those other services that have increased their amounts. So triple mm -hmm. net means it's net of those three items. They pay those in addition. And the other form, if it's not triple net, Marjorie, mm -hmm. it's commonly in the United States anyway, is called a, a gross modified lease. And how does that work then? Well, that's where you as the landlord, you pay all those expenses and the tenants pay you one amount. Sometimes they pay their own electricity. That's why it's modified. Sometimes they pay the gas. They pay their own telephone services if they get them in or internet services. But you might pay the property taxes and they just pay one gross amount for their, their rent. Interesting. And I really like how you provided us this idea of splitting the rent, uh, how you do it for your tenants, because it does let them see why their prices are increasing instead of just thinking, oh, maybe I have a bad landlord. So, right. Or he sneakily increased the mm -hmm. rent without telling us. Yeah, it makes it way more clear for them to understand why the prices went up. Right. So when talking about tenants and dealing with them, I know that there are some improvements that they may want to do. What are some of the most common improvements uh, you have been requested by your tenants? Usually with commercial space, and you know, I'm heavy on office space, is they want an interior remodel. The carpet's tired and worn and they want it redone. And often they'll do it themselves during a lease. If they've got a long-term lease, they just want to revamp. So they, they put new carpets in. But sometimes they might wait until the lease expires and then they use it as a bargaining chip. Hmm. Well, we'll sign up again, but in return, you have to do, and then they come up with a, a laundry list of things <laughs> they want you to do. New carpets. And it's all supply and demand. Like sometimes, um, you know, after the GFC, we had a lot of supply and not much demand. Mm. So we would offer great incentives for people to come in. A three-month rent holiday. Yes, mm. new carpets if you wanted. You want a new hot water cylinder, a bigger one? Okay, we'll put that in. <laughs> it didn't matter. But other times when it's really easy to get tenants, we don't need to offer much. And if someone says, we want new carpets and a new ceiling and new walls and new windows, it's basically a new building. And yet there's another tenant standing right beside them, a potential tenant who says, we'll take it as is. Hmm. Then why would you go and do all those things? So it's supply and demand, like anything. And in the case of all of these improvements, who is the one that is going to be responsible for paying for all of them? Well, if it's part of the negotiation to get the tenant into the building, then it's usually the landlord who pays for them. But very often, if they're in the middle of the lease and they want some dramatic change made, then the lease stipulates that the landlord may agree to implementing these things, but the tenant will pay extra rent in the form of X percent of the cost of the improvements. So they want $20,000 spent on it, then they might pay four, five, or 6% of that every year in the form of extra rent to enable you to make those changes. And everyone mm -hmm. wins. The tenant wants those changes because they'll make more revenue by having that new carpet in there or the new facade or whatever. So, you know, it's not all bad from that perspective. <laughs> and you win because you've got a tenant who's signing up for another five years. Yeah, and you've got that security for that passive income that is going to be coming for your building. 
Plus, those extra improvements, once your tenant moves out, you can still use it for increasing the price of the rent that you're going to be That's having. right, because those improvements are still there. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, another of the financial aspects of a building is the sales price. So when it comes to a building, who determines, me, who determines the sales price for this building? Well, that's a complex question. There's not one person who sits there in judgment and says, this building will sell at that price. So you've got many parties involved. You've got the owner of the building who's selling, and he might say, well, I want $8 million for this. And he might talk with an agent, and the agent says, I can tell you, at that price, you won't find a, build, a buyer ever because it's only worth $3 million. And then you might get a buyer who says, well, I'm willing to pay $1 million for it. And mm. his buyer's agent might say, well, you can stop looking. You know, so it just depends. It's whatever price a willing buyer and a willing seller can agree on. And it depends on the economy, but also the personal circumstances of the seller. I've had sellers who've been elderly and in rapidly declining health, and they just want the building off their hands. And I've had people who are elderly and rapidly declining health, and they say, no, it's worth $20 million. Oh. <laughs> I dealt with a shopping center in Melbourne, Australia. Mm -hmm. And there was an elderly gentleman. He was in his 80s. He owned it. And he apparently had told all his buddies that he'd get $115 million for it. Oh, wow. And he was determined to get it. Mm -hmm. And it was only worth $88 million. Mm -hmm. And there's a big difference between yeah, 88 and 115 double. no matter how many zeros <laughs> you put behind it. <laughs> And still we managed to acquire it. Oh, wow. He got his price and we paid our price. And you might wonder, how is that possible? Yeah, how could he get 115 <laughs> and we only paid 88? Oh, how did that happen then? Well, it's all to do with psychology. So he told all his buddies that he was going to get his price and he wouldn't sell it for a cent less. Hmm. And so we thought to ourselves, how can we make this work? So we went to him and we said, listen, if we give you a DB bond, a bond from Deutsche Bank, it's a bank that was operating big time in Australia at the time. If we give you a bond that matures in five years time at 115 million, would you be willing to accept that as payment? Hmm. Well, to buy that bond with interest rates the way they were, to buy that bond that matured in five years time at 150 million, we needed to pay 88 million. Oh, so the bank had to be involved, but they got all their transaction fees on it. Mm. He could tell his buddies the truth that he got 115 <laughs> for it. Of course, oh if you gosh. take the time value of money into account and backdate it the five years back mm -hmm. to today, well, what was then today, it was only 88 million, but he cleverly omitted to say that. So he said, I told you I'd get 115, <laughs> and that's what I'm going to get five years down the track. <laughs> Oh, wow. But it's all a matter of creativity. And to me, it's rather silly because, in effect, he only got $88 million for it, right? That's what it was worth today, that's and that's right. what the bond was worth that day. But people delude themselves into the craziest things. And again, it's not my place to criticize the shallowness of his thinking, but rather we should say, what a delight that he was willing to do it that way. Because mm -hmm. we managed to get it for the fair market value, and he thought he could convince his buddies that he got this ridiculous price. <laughs> That's interesting. And yeah, with all the pricing, uh, it just comes down to negotiation and making sure that you have enough tools in your arsenal to secure the price that you are willing to pay comfortably. Exactly. Now, when it comes to paying all of these like different fees and also purchasing a building, I mean, how can we calculate our budget when it comes to purchasing a building? How have you done it in the past for some of your buildings? Oh, gosh, I've had sophisticated software in the past where... 
um, we had three million lines of code to analyze a property. Oh, wow. And at one stage, it became very popular. We were, um, you know, selling it all over the world. Banks used it to determine whether they wanted to fund properties. Appraisers used it, and then lots of investors used it. I'm thinking of revamping it this time. We'll do it as software as a service. We used to sell it on CD-ROMs, and <laughs> you seem to acknowledge that you remember what they were. I remember, yeah. But <laughs> computers these days don't have a CD-ROM drive anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's, it's old technology, and you've got to stay up with the times. And at the end of the day, I had to ask myself, am I a software developer or a real estate investor? But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of revamping that. So you can put every factor that you can ever possibly take into account, the expected vacancy rate or the occupancy rate, what you're paying for the building, what it's worth the day you buy it, how much you're borrowing. You might have multiple mortgages. Are they interest only or P&I? And if they're P&I, are they table mortgages or balloon payments? All those things we could take into account. What were the rental increases? Were they annual every two years or every three years? Were they to CPI or were they based on market? So there are many variables, but the more you put into an equation, the more you get a picture of how something will perform. And uh, what are some of the, um, the tips that you can give us when we're purchasing a new building so we don't go way too out of our budget? Because I understand that that is always good. But we don't want to like purchase a building that is like way too much for what the money that we can possibly get from a bank. Well, I don't know what you mean by way too much, but if you don't lose sleep over an acquisition, at least for one or two nights, then maybe it's not a big enough acquisition. Oh. You see, if we always stay in our comfort zone, then we'll never do anything that's going to have a big impact on our lives. And people tend not to regret the buildings they bought that they shouldn't have bought They regret the buildings they didn't buy that they could have bought. And it all has to do with where will you get the cash flow to justify the loan? And the cash flow on real estate is from your tenants. You compare that just as a little tangent to gold or platinum. You buy gold or platinum, there's no cash flow. That's why you can't even borrow money. No bank in their right mind will lend you $100 million dollars to go and buy a big bar of gold because there's no income to cover it. You're speculating, and you're speculating with someone else's money. So banks won't do that. But when it comes to real estate, all over the world, banks are advertising on billboards and newspapers, radio, TV, online. Thinking of buying a house? Come and see us. Hmm. Right? We'll waive this fee. We'll give you a bit of that. Or commercial rate. Thinking of buying real estate? Come and see us first. We are the consumer-friendly <laughs> lender or whatever. They want to lend you money so that you can buy real estate. And I always say, banks want to lend you money. Let them give it to you. But don't go for a trivial amount. Go for a serious amount. Something that you lose sleep over for at least two nights. That's a really great advice. And I feel like it also uh, takes away all our fear that we have for investing into something really big. Because for all of those young investors right there um, that are thinking about purchasing their first building ever... I feel like it can be a little bit challenging, but if you know how to get your tenants, you are totally fine. And we are totally secure with all the amazing knowledge that you're sharing with us. Thank you so much for giving us this um, these encouragement to go ahead and start purchasing our, our first commercial building. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much to our audience. And we're going to see you in our next episode.